Welcome to Podagogies. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. Today, we're speaking with two professors from the University of Toronto Scarborough who've been teaching climate science across disciplines. Dr. Matthew Hoffman is a professor in the Department of Political Science and co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab. Also joining us today is Dr. Christine Bolis Reichert, an associate professor in the Department of English. Together, they co-teach a course called Literature, Politics, Revolution, Climate Futures. Welcome to you both, Matt and Christine. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's jump right in here. I would love to hear about this Climate Futures course and what inspired the two of you to bring together the students from your disciplines. So Christine and I have been friends for, for years and we share an interest in, in fiction and we also share a dread of climate change. And so we've been uh, talking about those shared interests for a number of years and we kicked around the idea uh, I, I don't know, Christine, probably for three or four years before we actually put it into practice. Yes. It came about because we were both feeling there was something missing from what, how we were teaching and, and what we were able to teach. Personally, I was searching for ways that I could connect with students when I teach about climate politics. My Most of my work is teaching about climate politics. And I'm seeing students more and more interested in climate politics, but I wanted to find different ways for them to connect to climate politics. And uh, that's what led me to think about and talk with Christine about moving into climate futures. Christine? Yeah, I think for those of us in the humanities, we're always looking for a way to say that we can connect to what's happening in the real world and that we're not only hiding in our books and hiding in works of art. So for me, the desire to find some connection, some stimulus to uh, be part of this larger conversation about the climate crisis came for me when I was finished being an administrator. I, I really desired to shift my teaching towards something that was about what was happening in our lives outside the university. And I started teaching a few other classes that had an environmentalist slant to them. And so when Matt approached me and said, you know, do you want to give it a try this year? I was very ready to do that because I was already teaching environmentalist literature and thinking about how can I connect it to something that students would say is tangible, something they can take outside the classroom. Naturally, a political approach would be wonderful for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess, you know, when you're thinking about the, the kind of practical side of things, the mix of literature and then political science, I imagine that there could be a really rich way for both groups of students to be yeah. sort of shifting their perspectives. Absolutely. So what is the role when it comes to literature and climate change or writing and fiction? I'm wondering how these two disciplines come together in the classroom and what that looks like. Yeah, that's been really an interesting project. I mean, I can compare how this works in a literature class versus how it worked in the classroom with Matt and me. In a straight literature course right now, for example, I'm teaching one which has four ways of seeing nature. And so we look at literary representations of nature in literature from the 17th century to the present, and they get a sense of how artists have seen themselves in relation to the natural world, how they've tried to express that relationship in different genres. Whereas in climate imaginaries, in climate futures, I think we were really trying to combine a grounded understanding of what was possible in the future through the study of policy, and then to look at what people had represented as a potential future in science fiction. So this was a way to start to see, well, 
if we take these policy ideas and bring them into our imagination, what are we going to do with it? Will there be positive representations of the future or negative representations of the future? And that was really, for me, the starting point. I'm sure Matt also has things to add to this. Yeah, and from the political science side, the students coming into the class had been either taking classes with me or other political science classes. They sort of know political dynamics well. And, and a lot of what they get taught is why climate action isn't working, yeah. why we're not able to make progress on climate change. And so for this class, we wanted to, to open up the imagination and say, well, one, is it possible that one of the reasons we're not making progress on climate change is that our imaginations are limited, that we can see very well what's not working and why it's not working. But what if we open it up? What if we say, okay, yes, we know what's working. We know the political dynamics that are at play. We know the scientific dynamics that are at play, but there's also a, a ton of uncertainty. And in the breadth of that uncertainty, can we fill that with imagination? Can we get people and and we know that people are thinking differently about this because the whole genre of climate fiction has really exploded in the last in the last 10 years. And so from the political science student perspective, it's really asking the question, can this imaginative process have a political and practical impact on how the world goes about responding to climate change? And at a personal level, can it offer the students a different way to connect with the politics? Can it offer them a way to think about where agency is, where their own empowerment might be, and what kind of conversations can an imaginative or futures-based approach play in, in their work as students and what they do when they're outside the university? It's so interesting to me to imagine what you might have your students do. So like in terms of assessments, what are what are the students doing in a class like this? Yeah, so that was that was really the fun part for Christine and I. We we treated it like an experiment and so that gave us I think freedom to be imaginative ourselves. And so we decided early on that we would have them do a mix. So the two classes we had 20 25 students each from political science and English. And we decided that the reading list would be the same for both groups yes. and that it would mix political science readings on both political dynamics, but especially future scenario work and how politics might unfold moving forward and climate fiction. Um, but then for the assessment, the big thing that we decided to do, and it was really fun, um, <laughs> we said that they were going to work in groups that had mixed political science and um, English students. So every group had to have at least one of, of each kind of student. And they did a world building exercise, say, what's the world going to look like in 2050? And then they, they made a character and then wrote a memoir from 2050 within that world that they built as, as a group. And the world building had to have connection to political dynamics that we talked about in class. But then beyond that, and those were sort of very loose parameters, beyond that, they were able to sort of imagine a world, place themselves or a character in it, and talk about what the world looked like, how the world got to be the way it was, and, and really go beyond sort of what they know, both from fiction or from political science, about imagination and about climate politics. Christine, why is that important? As, as somebody who studies literature, why is it important for students to get into that imaginative space? 
Well, I think students come to English because they want to occupy that imaginative space often. And I think it's important because we can only manifest something in reality if we've imagined it. We don't just call things into being out of nothing. And so we have ideas about what the future might look like. We have ideas about where different paths might take us if we were to follow them. And so one of the things that we did in the class together was to look at three examples of climate fiction, three novels, and they became models for the student of how a single author might try to imagine the steps that would take us to a particular future. So these were near future works of science fiction. And in each case, they, they could see, you know, a kind of variety of approaches where if you were to imagine, as we imagined with, with Kim Stanley Robinson at the Ministry for the Future, that it's possible to solve these problems laboriously over decades, you could start to see, okay, there's a way to work through these problems. We also had a more apocalyptic um, scenario for the future that was very imaginative um, called Future Home of the Living God. And that was, you know, imagining where things might go wrong. And it was it was about a kind of catastrophe in the future. So we, we sort of gave different possibilities where you could say, if I were to enter this space imaginatively, where might I end up? And so the students could see by building their worlds, which as Matt said, it was a hugely important part of the whole process. Then to say, okay, if I'm inhabiting that space, what's possible for me and my character in that space? And I, I think that it was a, such a great exercise because we have to build the world in order to have our stories unfold there. I think this is really fascinating. Coming into this conversation, I was sort of envisioning a creative writing workshop style class that we would be talking about, but you're talking about something that sounds quite different. I'm hearing you talk about world making and like sort of speculative fiction creation and, and, and all of these things. And it sounds wonderful. And I really, you know, what you said, Matthew, about filling uncertainty with imagination is really resonating. And I'm thinking about how the uncertainty part is very real, right? Like there's this vibrant work we can do around imagination and future gazing and thinking about things. But of course, climate change is, um, it is real. And the emotions around climate change and the impact of climate change, um, we're feeling it, students are feeling it. And so I'm also wondering how we grapple with the issues as they're as they're presented to us in, in classrooms. You seem to be doing this in a really unique way. In a previous conversation, Matthew, I think you told us that you frame the class in, in two parts, hope and, and despair. And I wondered if you both could, could speak to the hope and despair around this kind of work. That's a great point. And it, it's something I, I grapple with every semester and have for, for years. Um, because students are coming to the class with various degrees of, of hope and despair. And I think that it's really on us to, to meet them where they're at with that and to take that seriously. And so my other classes on global environmental politics, I, I organize around hope and despair. And it really is drawing on Rebecca Solnit's work on hope, where she sees hope as not the opposite of despair. Despair is about certainty, certainty that things can't get better. And hope is uncertainty. We don't know if it's going to get better. That would be optimism. But there's uncertainty. We don't know what how the future is going to unfold. And I think that thinking about uncertainty that way and hope that way is actually pretty powerful for students because I think that the ones that come to class with despair 
are inundated with messages that things can't change or can't or they can't see the paths to change because you know we we're all sort of present chauvinists right and or near past chauvinists if you can't see the steps that it would take to change then you start to think well we're just locked into to whatever we've got and so one of the the reasons that this class we set it up the way it did we actually use rebecca solnit's work quite a bit in this class is to take that head on we drew on political science work that was very much about uncertainty and what are the different ways in which change can happen and then paired that with the the climate fiction to talk about okay if if change is possible if the world if if everything's not already written well what can be written to sort of change course and that that combination can be powerful and and so that really played uh, sort of a foundational role for how we thought about planning the course i would say one of the foundational texts for me um is the great derangement by amitabh ghosh and it's been talked about a lot and it's taught endlessly i'm sure in, in literature and environment courses I'm using it again this term. And in relation to um, what Matt was just saying about the overall conception of the course and, and being able to kind of envision this future and not to be in despair, Amitabh Ghosh really talks about how we have this inability to tell stories about climate change. And it's getting a little better. I mean, he was writing in 2015, but uh, there's this desire to look away from it. It, it seems to be this massive force that we have no control over. And particularly when we talk about it in terms of climate rather than say ecology, we see it as a force that is beyond us. And so when we think about the need not to look away, to see the natural world, to see ourselves in relation to the natural world in some way, and not to just put up this kind of veil over the terrible events that are happening. So even though I, I agree that despair is problematic as an approach to, to life and to the future, I think we have to also be willing to look at all of it, to look at how we're feeling about it and not just to look away. Because I feel like not looking right now is the biggest danger to turn away from what's happening as, as a and, you know, something I can relate to as a kind of survival technique to say, okay, I can't look at this every day. I can't think about this every day. And yet, if we don't, then we're sort of robbing ourselves of the chance to create that relationship ourselves. It's happening somehow beyond us. Yeah, the emphasis on hope is also really interesting to me. And you brought up Rebecca Solnit. I work closely with a, a friend who also does some work related to climate change. And, and she explained to me once the term hope splain. Um, and it, it's sort of uh, on the heels of Rebecca Solnit, who wrote about mansplaining, and uh, now is sometimes critiqued for hope splaining. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, how do you balance the hope and the despair? And how do students receive those messages? Because sometimes they can be competing messages or maybe even confusing. Well, I remember saying to my students in literature and environment this term that even being in the class was an act of hope. <laughs> even trying to get a degree is an act of hope. I mean, because if you really, if you really thought there was no point to anything and that we were, we were all going to be headed for total apocalypse in 50 or 100 years, then, then why are we even talking about this together? We're talking about it because we do have hope. And we want to pretend to ourselves sometimes that we don't have hope because we want to protect ourselves against disappointment. I think we really do. I think that's what our species often is characterized by, our hopefulness, even when it's foolish to keep hoping. 
And so in this case, it's not foolish. It's the right thing to do. And there is a kind of hope splaining that goes on. And we were talking, you know, about how can you see what's happening and say, people will get better. We will heal our divisions. We will heal ourselves. We were looking at, at the work of Ben Okri and, and um, Robin Wall Kimmerer this week. And they're both very hopeful that we could do something as human beings. And well, who else is there to do something? And so I feel like hope explaining is, is a bit of a mean way to, to bring down people who are, I mean, I, I know you're not saying it, but I, but it's a mean way to say that, you know, we shouldn't even be trying to talk through a way to, to be hopeful. And, and I'll say, even when I or students sort of dip into despair, right? Yeah. It's a non-zero probability that things won't go right, <laughs> right? That we actually, civilization ending climate change is a non-zero probability. I hope it's not a huge probability, but it's certainly non-zero. And so the, the flip side of this sort of hope explaining is also, do we have any other, like, what's the alternative, right? What is the alternative to thinking, to acting as if there's uncertainty? And so one of the things, and this also comes from Solnit, and, you know, I can I'll admit to being sort of a fanboy of, of hers, like, I think she's just unbelievable. Um, but even let's 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 have a thought experiment. Let's say okay, we're in actually we're in a world where despair is reasonable or it is the is right because we can't fix it. How do you want to live your life in that space, right? Solnit quotes some Soviet dissidents who talked about how we never actually thought we would achieve human rights, but how do you want to live with dignity? And so I think that there's something to be said for imagining different futures and working towards them because working on climate change is also working for social justice and racial equality. These things are all linked and uh, not only racial equality, economic equality, whatever, uh, however you want to think about it, justice and climate action are linked. And so giving students the tools to imagine different pathways, I think, and giving them somewhere to put the angst and despair that they often feel and put it somewhere productive and have give them also the tools to reflect on on those those emotions that they're feeling i think is an important role that that we can play as educators and also it helps me frankly so it's cathartic <laughs> to, i i can't say that i'm doing this altruistically i struggle with all of the same emotions that the students are and so this is one of the this is sort of therapy for me in some ways. Yeah, that's really insightful. I can see I can see how that would absolutely be the case. I'm also kind of wondering or I'm I'm thinking about I'm trying to put myself in the perspective of your students and you know, um I love that it's this interdisciplinary approach where you're bringing these two groups of students who are studying typically very different things together. As I think about that and I think about storytelling. Christine you said, you know, this inability we have to tell stories about about climate change, but on another level, I guess politics is also about storytelling, right? You've got different parties with different, you know, worldviews or explanations of of our relationship to climate change. They're always telling us stories and trying to sell us on an idea of the future and what's encompassed in that future. So I'm wondering, I don't know, Matt, for you, if uh, your students are, you know, they've signed up for a politics course and now they're reading this, you know, speculative fiction or whatever it might be. Do you make that connection with them? Is that part of this discussion of like, you know, how we tell stories and how our stories create the world? 
Yeah, to some degree, I, I will say there were a lot of uh, deer in the headlights the first day when uh, we went because <laughs> some of them had seen what was happening ahead of time and some just saw that they had class at, you know, one o'clock on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> we, we do try and try and make that connection. There's the cliches like politics is art of the possible and and things along these lines. And one of the things we tried to do in class with the different readings was really make the distinction between sort of climate science, the sort of natural dynamics of climate change and climate politics and how climate politics is really the, the driving force. I mean, there are certain impacts from climate change that we're going to feel because of things that have already happened, but that all of those things that we feel now and are going to feel in the future and how we're going to experience them, experience them are from or resultant of political, economic, and social choices. That the, we, we talk a little bit about the Anthropocene in class, this notion that we are in a new geologic era where humanity is the, the key driving force of the era. And that that in some ways makes it scary, like we've changed the geologic mechanisms and dynamics of the planet, but it also means that it's actually up to us. And so we talk a lot about in the class about how politics is the determining factor behind what happens with climate change, what we're going to feel and experience. Um, it sounds like what you're doing, if I, you know, if I can kind of sum it up, you teach students to think critically through this, this massive event in our lives, critically and imaginatively. And that's really neat for me to hear, you know, I'm beginning to try to teach students and have conversations with students about climate change as well. And, and, and these are, these are difficult. It's difficult to start to think about, okay, how do I design pedagogy in a way that is transdisciplinary and in a way that is engaging with, with climate change um, and is meeting my students where, where they're at. That's a really difficult thing I think to do. And it sounds like you're doing it. And I'm just wondering, you know, um, do you have, do students give you feedback? Like, do you have a sense from them about how this is going, and and if the if the exercises that you're doing with them are they impactful? I remember one of the political science students saying at the end of the course um, that reading all of this literature had been a revelation, which made me feel really good. Okay, well, revelation. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. um, but but it, it was really exciting to me to see students outside my field being excited by, you know, imaginative works. And it was exciting to hear from the English students in the course that, oh, wow, it's so nice to be able to ground what they were thinking about, what they wanted to write about, what they wanted to talk about in the way things might actually unfold. And so they were really grateful for the lessons that Matt was giving them on climate science, because let's face it, they hadn't really studied science since high school, and they didn't really have a sense of what was happening to us all and how it might unfold in their lives, um, in their lifetime. And so that was a wonderful thing to them to be able then to sort of bring together their desire to imagine what was possible with what actually could happen. Yeah, and, and this was, I think what Christine just talked about was a, was a fairly common reaction. Uh, the, the last assignment for the class was a 500 word reflective essay on what they got out of the experiment. And so controlling for some degree of students trying to tell us what we want to hear um, <laughs> in, an essay, in a reflective essay like that. Always a problem, yeah. 
Yeah, they did seem to get what Christine just talked about was, I think, the sort of modal response. The political science students, most of them that we got reactions from, you know, expressed some mix of surprise, like, oh, I didn't know that reading this would be so useful. That plus a, I wish I'd been doing this more throughout my career, reflecting on not just the political dynamics, but how things can change and, and different means of change. And we get this in disciplinary silos all the time that, yes, I'm a political scientist, so I'm going to look at, even when I want to change the world, I'm going to try and look at political levers, right? And so we train our students to look at political levers, and that's good. We need to know how to pull those levers for change. But it does impoverish our view of what's possible and what other kind of levers might, even if I'm interested in political change, what other kind of levers might generate political change. And so they were grateful as far as I could tell, and they seemed to get out. One of the things they got out of the class was thinking, well, maybe this imaginative approach, this sort of thinking about climate futures in different ways can contribute to pulling the sort of political levers and interacting with the political dynamics that I've been studying for these four years, because we all had all fourth year students for the most part, that I've been studying for four years. That's great. I, at TMU, we're having lots of discussions right now about um, you know the kind of future of post-secondary education and, and what curriculum is going to look like you know, five years from now or maybe even sooner you know, the impacts of artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. But this kind of approach to, you know, what is often called, I guess, a wicked problem, uh, where you're looking at it through these different disciplinary lenses and you're bringing those lenses together to, to enrich the learning of the students. Is that a discussion that's happening at U of T in your departments? Uh, how are your colleagues reacting to the kind of thing that you're doing? Well, I was definitely the first in English to have ever, as far as anyone remembers, taught with someone outside of English. So in my 23 years at UTSC, that's that's not a great record. Uh, so I would say typically we're not having those conversations, at least in English. Matt, I don't know about political science. Oh, that's the same. I mean, yeah. I think the university has some good conversations about interdisciplinarity in general, often tied to research rather than, yes. than teaching. We kind of did this class on the QT. Um, <laughs> our chairs, you know, gave us permission, but this was this was experimental. And part of the reason is because there isn't something set up for this, right? Bureaucratically, even this, the university is not set up for this. And so while I think that students can get a decent mix of sort of an interdisciplinary approach by choosing different classes, they have to make those connections themselves. And what was wonderful about this class is having both of us in the room meant that we were able to, to work with the students to make those connections directly. Yeah, I mean, our center has a quality assurance uh, department and, you know, they go through these periodic program reviews and every seven years the programs go through it. And I just, I would love for these kinds of experiments to become a larger part of that process where we're thinking about the ways that other disciplines can enrich the outcomes, the program outcomes for our students. Because, you know, I'm imagining like for the political science students in this case, if that sort of imaginative future is not really part of their training as political science students, you know, we're missing something. We're missing something critical to being able to solve these problems, right? Yeah. We probably need to go back to old school liberal arts education. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, those yeah. are the skills we're going to need post-chat post, uh, GPT, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I think that the mention earlier of the university encouraging interdisciplinary research is, is definitely the place we should be starting from to push toward 
delivering that interdisciplinarity in the classroom. I mean, what are we doing interdisciplinary research for if we don't value it as an approach to learning? And if we are doing this ourselves, the next step clearly is to bring that into the classroom. Figuring out how to do it the way that, that we did on the fly was exciting, you know, but the university should also be helping us to do that because that's a great opportunity for students. I think all the students who took the class felt really lucky that they had for the first time in four years, a class that combined these two very different approaches to seeing this huge problem something they really cared about. And yeah, it gives them different lenses onto the world they live in. And I, I think everybody, even if they don't know they want it, I think we actually all want that. We all want different ways of seeing something, different angles on the same problem. It reminds me as an undergrad, you know, Matt, that point about how the students basically, as it's constructed now, they have to make these connections. I remember I was taking in fourth year a, a course on existentialism and a course on postmodern fiction. Um, mm -hmm. And I ended up writing yeah. like a paper for my English class where I was using Nietzsche kind of thing, right? Like <laughs> I was making those connections, um, but it wasn't really part of the curriculum. And I, there's yeah. just such an opportunity there that really excites me. I love this. Chell, shall we wrap? Well, I do have one more question. Something that's on my mind. And if no one wants to answer it, then, <laughs> then let's wrap. Um, uh, one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, I'm listening to this conversation and I'm hearing about interdisciplinary connections and the university and, and sort of the structures around this course and even what we're doing in the course. But it also occurs to me that climate change, it's a big affective emotional topic. And I'm wondering you know, Matt and Christine, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you care for yourselves when you're trying to teach about climate change in this combined way? And in a way where the, the path towards teaching this hasn't really been forged before. A lot of teaching around climate change, be it interdisciplinary or not, is, is quite new. So how do you take care of yourselves or how do you try to take care of yourselves when you grapple with this content? Well, I'll answer first because I want Matt to have the last word on this. He's been grappling with it far longer than I have um, his whole career. I did notice when we were teaching the class last year, especially after it was over, I realized how much of a burden it had been to be thinking about these issues every week and talking about these issues every week. And I, I had anticipated that. It actually did weigh on me in a way that my other teaching didn't. And so figuring out how to manage that, I think, is new for me. I, I hadn't expected to feel so much, to feel so intensely for the future, even though I had abstractly considered it before, I had taught post-apocalyptic fiction before, but I hadn't considered it as something to work toward and hope toward and to feel the resistance toward that. And I, I think I'm still going to have to figure out how to manage it for myself the next time we do the class. But I, I would love to hear Matt's thoughts because you've had to deal with this so much more than I have. Yeah, welcome to welcome to my world. Um, I've I started my doctoral studies in 1995, uh, and I've been working on climate politics um, since since then. And one of the things I tell the students uh, is that's an incredible indictment of the world's ability to uh, react to climate change because I'm here. I am still still studying climate politics um, all these years later. It's not easy. Um, I actually don't read climate fiction outside this class because it's too triggering for me. So I enjoy the imaginative process, but I don't need to read climate fiction um, because I'm, I'm sort of living climate reality. But I actually find that I feel better in semesters that I'm teaching classes like this and my climate change politics class than I do when, I, when I'm not because 
this wouldn't be for everyone. But for me, it's doing the work of teaching about climate change that keeps me out of the abyss. It's where I'm not only grappling with it directly, it has a reassurance for me of seeing, okay, here's the places where there are uncertainty. Here's the places where change can happen. And it's being very conscious about that while I'm teaching. But it's also realizing just on a very personal level, everyone has a role to play in acting on climate change. And this is one of mine. Teaching a class like this is participating in the global response to climate change in whatever small way that I can. So that also provides me with some solace in the face of all the bad news that you get almost every day. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think that's really evident in your assessment, right? The the way that you're getting students to, to, to be imaginative and to think through both sides of the hope and despair um, kind of uh, dialectic, I guess. Um, but I hear what you're saying about climate fiction too, because there's some of it. Uh, two books, The Overstory and Migrations, and both of them just destroyed me. I'm like, I don't know if I need to read this stuff. Overstory is horribly depressed. It's a beautiful book, but it's yeah. horribly depressing. Yeah. And I was like, if this is climate fiction, my goodness, I'm, I don't know what to do with that. Before we end, do you have one book that you would recommend, especially for students, if we're talking about cli-fi? I think we'll probably recommend the same one, but I'll let Matt uh, say it. Oh, I, I will. <laughs> Ministry for the Future is yes. actually quite good, yes. especially for yeah. any students that are politically inclined. It's a it's a great work of science fiction, I think, but it also it is deeply infused with politics. And I'll also I'll also put in a plug for a student oriented work. It's not a book. The Environmental Governance Lab that I work with put some of these principles into, into action in a, in a project around writing climate fiction. So not just, uh, not just using it in the classroom. We put together a magazine of short stories about Canada's achievement of its net zero goal by 2050. And uh, Christine participated in this. And I would say half the pieces were written by students. Uh, it's a project called We Did It exclamation point question mark and so <laughs> if students are interested in what can be done with this that's a that's a and plus they're pretty fun reads thank you so much for being with us today I, I love the work you're both doing together and you know i can't wait to hear what the next iterations of it are thank you yeah thanks so much for having us this was great and thanks for having an episode like this uh, we also want to give a big thank you to instructional technologist sally goldberg powell who produces podagogies and we want to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast.